I believe our God is real and that he's alive. So, Lord, we thank you for the ways that you're moving in each of our individual lives. We thank you for the ways that you're moving in our, our body as a whole, the way that you are shaping us and making us more like Jesus, in our individual character, reflecting you more. And God, that we as, as a whole body here in the different gifts that come together, the different background and the, the diversity of our experiences and our perspectives, and God, that you're using all of that to make us a particular kind of people who are a good news people here in our city and around the world. And so I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and make us the body of Christ. Amen. So in the Old Testament, there is a group of writings uh, from a group of men called the prophets. And if you read the prophets, it's a pretty wild ride. Uh, They talk about a lot of very, (laughs) it's fun to read the prophets. Um, They talk about all sorts of things. They talk about God's judgment that's coming. They talk about promises that God has made to his people. Uh, they talk about warnings to Israel as well as to the nations. They, they hear from God and they, they speak from God to people. And to those who are willing to listen, they heard and they responded. And one of the most important things that the prophets write about is God's promises for the future. That for the people of Israel, most of the prophets were writing at a time that was often very difficult for Israel. Many of them were writing when they were in exile, away from the land, away from the temple. And so they were writing um, words that they were longing to hear from God. And one of those was about the promise of a Messiah that would come. The prophets often speak of a Messiah, a Savior, who is going to come and rescue the people of Israel and also be the savior of the whole world. And one of the prophets is named Isaiah. And Isaiah has a very long section in his book where he talks about the Messiah who will come, and he calls this Messiah the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 40 through 55. Isaiah talks about this Messiah who will come who is called the suffering servant. And this Messiah, according to Isaiah, is going to save Israel from their suffering, and he's also going to bring salvation to the whole world. So let's give you a couple of examples. This section of Isaiah begins in this way. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a promise at the very beginning of these chapters about the suffering servant that God is going to comfort his people. And throughout the chapters, there's also these hints that this Messiah that's going to come and comfort and save Israel is also going to be the savior of the whole world. So chapter 49, verse 6 says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
So there's these promises throughout these chapters that a Messiah is going to come, is going to rescue Israel, and that this Messiah also, in some way, is going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, and will save the world as well. And that this servant is going to save the world through suffering. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks about some of the most clear prophetic words about the kind of suffering that the Messiah would go through. For example, part of Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross. The promise that one day this Messiah would come and through his suffering would save us from our sin. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. In the passage that we're going to look at today, it's very clear that Jesus knew himself to be this suffering servant that Isaiah promised would come. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and going to Jerusalem meant only one thing for Jesus. He was going there to die. In Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, there's a clear moment in Jesus's ministry where he's no longer traveling from village to village, doing the ministry of healing and teaching and proclaiming the good news. Instead, there is this resolute decision to look toward Jerusalem and to not turn to the right or to the left, but to go to Jerusalem to die. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of Luke, from that point on, he is on a path to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going there to die. Jesus's death was not an accident. He didn't get caught up in like a web of lies and deceit that he was surprised about. This was his purpose. This was his mission. It was his plan, the plan that God had sent into motion before time even began. It was the plan that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and to die. He believes, he knows, he tells his disciples here that he is about to go and to experience all of those sufferings that were described in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus knows who he is. He knows the calling that the Father has given to him. And he knows and he's ready to go and to be the suffering servant of Israel and the Savior of the world. And here in this moment, he tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen exactly why they're going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be mocked, to be tortured, and to die, and to be raised back to life. 
And then at this moment where he tells his disciples that he's about to go to Jerusalem to die, James and John and their mama approach Jesus with a request. And here is the request. John chapter 20, starting at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John and their mom come with this request, and um, for the first time in the Gospels, Peter does not win the foot in the mouth award. This was, belongs in this chapter to James and John and to their mother. Jesus has just told them that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And just before that, he had told a parable where the entire parable was about how the first will be last and how the last will be first. And just before that, he had reminded Peter that Peter was asking the wrong question when he asked what he would receive, what he would gain from giving up everything to follow Jesus. And then just before that, he had talked to the rich young ruler who was this person who had great success and great power and authority in the world's eyes. And Jesus told him that he was not able to enter the kingdom. And just before that, Jesus had to tell his disciples who were trying to shoo away the children that if they wanted to become a part of the kingdom of God, that they needed to become like little children. All of the teachings the disciples had been hearing over the previous hours or the previous days had been all about becoming less, all about becoming like a child, about becoming a servant. Jesus was telling them that the way up in the eyes of God is the way down in the eyes of the world. And it's a call to be willing to suffer. But at that moment, after hearing all of those stories, James and John come and they say, we want to be in control. We want to be the vice president and the chief of staff when you come into power. James and John had some ideas about what was going to happen next when Jesus went to Jerusalem. I don't know what they were doing when he just told them that he was about to suffer and die. I don't know, but... They didn't hear him. They thought that when he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be sitting on a throne and they would be sitting on his left and on his right. And so it's really easy for us to kind of shake our heads at James and John. And I poked a little bit of fun at him and their mom in this story. But I just want to 
give them a little bit of mercy here as well. Because I think that this is what's going on in their heads. James and John were nobodies. They were fishermen. They, for their whole life, believed that they were the last. And now Jesus is telling them that the last are going to be first. They think that this is their time. Their time has now arrived. We have lived our lives as, uh, as people of Israel, crushed and oppressed by the Romans and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We as fishermen are even nobody among our people. Jesus is telling us that now is our time that we get to be first. It's amazing how quickly our humility can turn into pride and how our, our service to other people can become self-serving. James and John see this as an opportunity for themselves. Jesus has been talking about us. We're the nobodies. We're the last that get to become first in Jesus's kingdom. And so in this moment, they grab onto a little bit of opportunity for their own self-interest. And what happens when they do that among the disciples? The disciples become very angry with them. They become indignant. There becomes division among the disciples. Their ambition motivated their self-interest to come and see if we could be at the top. And that created then division among them and the other 12. And so Jesus sees this happening, and he takes this as an opportunity to teach them about what real power and real authority look like in the kingdom of God. Let me read verses 25 through 28 again. Jesus called them together. Kind of imagine them maybe, maybe like huddling them up or let's all stand in a circle and hold hands for a minute and talk about what it means to have authority in the kingdom of God. And this is what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, these people who have lorded it over you, who have caused you to suffer, that they exercise authority over people, but not so with you, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not so with you, not so with you. The world has a particular understanding of what power and authority look like and how that is exercised, but not so with you, my followers. If you are going to follow me, whatever authority or privilege or power or authority or leadership that you have, it's going to be exercised in my way. You're going to become a servant to other people. He reminds them of his own role as a servant. He is about to become like the least. He is about to give his life as a ransom for many people. Jesus is not so with you is this calling to his disciples to follow his way. Over the last few weeks, we have been talking about Jesus's call to, to the narrow way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the road that leads to destruction is wide and many people find it, but there is a narrow road that leads to life 
and very few people find it. And we've been reading the last few stories through the lens of Jesus's call to us to live and to walk the narrow way. And so we, a couple weeks ago, we, we thought about that in light of our own, our own sexuality, to call to live in obedience to the way that we use our bodies sexually, that we are to follow him along the narrow way, even when it's difficult, even when it's painful, even when it goes against what our flesh longs for or desires. Last week, we talked about the call to the narrow way as it relates to our money and to our possessions and how Jesus saw the idolatry of the rich young ruler and called that rich young ruler to a very narrow way in his life. And that that narrow way, that call to the rich young ruler needs to be a challenge to each one of us as well, to ask ourselves how our money and our possessions may be getting in the way of us following Jesus in the way that he's calling us to. The narrow way I've wanted to suggest to us over the last few weeks is not to tell us how many people are going to be in heaven and hell, but it's a reminder to us that in the life of obedience to him, that if we want to live our lives built on the solid rock of the teaching of Jesus, there are going to be times when we have to make decisions that are really hard, where it would be easier to take a different way. There was a little girl in Sunday school, and the lesson was on lying. And the teacher asked her about about what lying was. And she said, lying is an abomination to God and a very present help in times of trouble. (laughs) There are so many times in our life when it's just hard to tell the truth. The narrow road is just to say the truth, and it's hard. And it's costly and it's painful. There are times in life that we we face every single day where we have to make these narrow way, difficult decisions because we know that they are the calling of obedience to Christ. And we know that that is the way that leads to life. When Jesus calls to a life of obedience to him, he calls us to pay attention to the narrow way, to these difficult decisions that we have to make day in and day out that lead to life rather than destruction. And the great thing about Jesus is that he never asks us to do anything that he didn't do himself. And in this story, we see that Jesus chose the narrow way. And the narrow way was the road to Jerusalem. It was the road to suffer and die. Early on in his ministry, he was tempted by the devil in the desert to take the broad and easy way to become king. Just bow to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus consistently in that moment and in every moment of his life, in every moment of his ministry, and at this moment when he sees that he now must go to Jerusalem, he chooses the narrow way of the suffering servant. So here in this story, Jesus gathers his disciples together and he tells them, he tells us that when it comes to power and influence and authority, that the way of following him is the way of the suffering servant servant. James and John, you have no idea what you're asking me. If you want to sit on my left and my right, you are going to suffer and you will drink that cup. James and John and all of the disciples, 
all the members of Broadway Christian Church, the kings and rulers and politicians of this world, they take their authority and they lord it over people. But not so with you. If you want to follow me, you are called to be a servant, Jesus says. If you want to be great, you must become like the least. If you want to be first, you must become like a slave. If you want to learn how to reign and rule, you must become like a little child. Jesus has been instructing his disciples and us that in order to be great in the eyes of God, we must become like the least. We must become a servant. But why? I just want to finish by asking why. Why does Jesus tell us to become a servant? Didn't he do all of that already for us? Didn't, wasn't he already the suffering servant and he, he paid that price for us? What does it benefit us or benefit the world for us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus? What does it benefit the world for us to follow him in the way of the suffering servant? Is there anything that's accomplished by us being a suffering servant like Jesus? I want to take you to two passages of scripture as we finish that describe to us the way that the earliest disciples understood the work that they were called to do in the world and how closely they tie that in their own minds, in their own imaginations, in their own heart and identity about who they are, how closely they tie that to the work of Jesus himself. The first one comes in Acts 13, verses 44 through 47. This is Paul and Barnabas, and they're on their their ministry, and they, they say something incredible here that's important for us to hear. It says this, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I quoted this earlier from Isaiah as a quotation where Isaiah was talking about the Messiah, Jesus, who was going to be a light to the Gentiles so that that Messiah may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul and Barnabas here boldly, I think blasphemously, it seems, says that those words spoken about Isaiah are now about us in the work that we're doing right now. The work that we're doing in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, that was a word about us too, because we are people who have been filled with the spirit of Christ and who have been made the body of Christ in the world. They were bold in their understanding that the work that they did wasn't wasn't just some nice thing that they should go do, but was actually being the hands and feet of Jesus, being the mouth of Jesus to the world. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says a very similar thing, and it seems blasphemous to me, but it's the way that Paul understood his identity as one who was a part of the body of Christ. He says this, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, 
which is the church. It's a dense sentence. I'll just give you a moment to think a little bit about what Paul is saying here. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul understood that the suffering that he was going through was suffering that he was sharing with Christ himself. That he had been called and filled with the Spirit to go. And that any suffering that he was suffering was suffering that Christ was sharing with him. And that he was filling up all of those places in the world, all of those churches in the world, all those cities in the world who had not yet experienced the salvation of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm going to go to those places and fill up in my own suffering what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What that means is there are places in the world who do not yet know about the afflictions of Christ and the salvation that it brings. And I, in my own life and ministry, I'm going to go there and suffer so that others may hear. Paul has this radical view of his calling and of the calling of the church that we are called to be the body of Christ in the world, that we've been filled with his spirit. And in every way where we go in the way of Jesus as suffering servants, that we go as his hands and feet, as his ears and his eyes and his mouth for the world. God is using us to bring about his healing through his good news and through our tangible kindness of others. This is a role that only the church, the body of Christ can play. No government or political party or social service agency can play this role. All those things have a place in God's economy, but the role of the church is to live our lives together as people for the sake of others. And as we do that in the manner of Jesus, we are going as his body. And doing that often feels like the narrow way. Because very often the work that we do doesn't feel like it's accomplishing very much. We're tempted to believe that the way that God works is through big and loud things, through worldly power and worldly wealth, through worldly recognition influence and influence. But Jesus says, not so with you. I have a different way for my people to go into the world and to, the, to do the work that I'm calling them to do. God, would you help us to believe and to understand what not so with you means for us? Show us the ways that we have come to believe that, like James and John, that somehow we need to be first. God, give us the, the strength, the, the eyes to see, the ability, the wisdom and insight to know what it means for us to serve others, to be willing to be last so that others can come to know you, so that others can use their gifts, whatever that may be, God, I pray that you would make us people who are willing to be servants of one another. Lord, we can only do this through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and make us your body. Amen.